if the U.S. government, the media, the legal system, and the church can't keep democracy alive. It's time for a state sale, a podcast on American democracy, because America is better than this. Thank you for joining us, everyone, on a state sale. I am Lori Lattimore Volkman. I'm Brad Rayleigh. Today, once again, we have a special guest. Brad will be speaking with Dr. Gary Poe. He earned a PhD in church history from Southern Seminary and is currently professor of history at Palm Beach Atlantic University in Florida. Enjoy this enlightening conversation. Well, thank you for sitting down. I thought, who better to talk to about some of this than you? There's probably a list of people better, right? I was going to say, I can give you a long list. <laughs> no, no, that's not true. He also taught me how to run a pick and roll when I was in high school. So there's, there's that. <laughs> Um, uh, the basketball days. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So let me tap into your expertise as a historian of of the early church, um, okay. and actually an expert on on most of I think uh, religious history. Certainly more so than me. One of the things I've run across in podcasts and other things I've been listening to is just this kind of idea of the early church and Christianity itself being born out of a response to empire, um, and. And that, that, again, there may be words in there that you'll quibble with, um, and I'd love to have that corrected. Um, and then seeing it in the context, and again, understanding that when I'm talking about this, I'm talking about certain segments of the church today, which seem to be much more embedded in defending American empire, to use the, the example. Um, and I'm struck by that contrast, and I'm kind of curious, uh, A, um, how correct is that in terms of my, because my, you know, my historical knowledge is weakens the further uh, you get earlier than the Civil War, uh, the American Civil War. <laughs> um, and so I, I, I want to really honestly question about that and then, you know, maybe assess where you think it is now. And then maybe we can talk about how it got from point A to point B. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> now, this is something I think about a lot. I'm shaped by my own background in a sense, as you are, as kind of growing up in a tradition that was notable for its emphasis on uh, the separation of empire and church or church and state, however you want to look at it. And really its foundations, that's what it stood for um, in Europe and particularly in the United States. And um, as a principle, Christian principle, and in some ways it's kind of sad to see that's not always the case anymore but um place where i got my education still held on to those roots so kind of shapes that narrative and looks at history from that perspective and um as i think about this one of the i think this came up well i don't remember exactly when i started thinking about this but it made me recall augustine's uh, city of god uh, which was kind of an apologetic polemic he writes after the Visigoths had sacked Rome in 410 and um, everybody's all up in arms about, you know, the sky is falling, uh, the empire is falling, uh, let's blame the Christians, you know, all kinds of things that were going on at the time. And Augustine basically takes, has two purposes with that work. One was, first of all, to say, um, 
Christians are not at fault for the fall of the empire because that's not their responsibility. Um, and two, uh, the empire is really not all that great in the first place, and that Christians actually uh, come from another kingdom, represent another kingdom, the city of God, and that's where their loyalties should always rest and never uh, in secular spheres, if you want to use that word. Um, and he goes on to point out all the problems with the Roman Empire going well back through its history and saying it really never was such a great thing anyway. So let's don't let's recognize the faults and the problems there. And I got to thinking about that because I read that with my students just about every fall or parts of it, at least. And last year in particular, I got to thinking about maybe we needed to rehear hmm. some of Augustine's words about this connection between, as he called it, the city of God and the city of man and recognize very distinct differences and that Christians should not be focused on the city of man or the Roman empire, but instead mm. that they're from a different kingdom and that's where their focus should always be. And that's where their hope should always rest. So that's kind of a starting point, I guess. And that. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Uh, this idea of separation of church and state is funny that that, that was something Lori and I've been talking about. And, and I agree with you completely that that is kind of the, the context in which I grew up. Um, I remember my dad being an, a, you know, a pretty vocal advocate for separation of church and state, sure. um, and then kind of seeing that whittled away in the last um, several years. But I'm also struck by the fact that when Augustine was writing this, he was writing to Christians who were uh, feeling defensive about the empire. Is that correct? Not as much. That's more of a secondary audience in some ways, maybe. I think okay. he's writing more out of an apologetic to defend Christianity as not being the cause of the fall of the city of Rome. But I don't think it's a stretch to say that there weren't Christians who were also worried about things as the empire was crumbling. Mm. He was trying to comfort and or challenge to say that that's okay. This is not where your hope lies. Right. Right. Outside of the city of man. Even the, the, the story of Christianity, the story of Christ, the, the crucifixion, the, all of that, that we just went through the Easter season, thinking about that sense of persecution. And I, I was kind of musing as I was kind of getting ready for this. I was thinking about how those stories have been woven into the kind of ideas of Christianity from the early days, I'm, I'm guessing. I mean, I mean, they, they show up in, um, in, ritual and story and hymn and um, certainly in the language it seems to me this this language that is so often used by Christians at least that I'm that I'm uh, that I have conversed with where that same language is there and yet it's referring to a really different time and as historians you know we're always talking about the past as a different place and they do things differently there and you know but for a lot of people this is a, a blur you know and so I I'm, I'm struck by how often Christians use words like kingdom um, today as they live in a supposed democracy I mean there's there's these kind of interesting kind of conflict of terms it seems to me are ideas and I'm, I'm wondering is, does that make sense yeah I think so I was still tell my students the best way to think of it is divided in half with Constantine in the middle and in a sense, up until Constantine, when you went through the catechesis or the formation to be a new Christian, it sometimes talked about it as preparation for martyrdom. Mm. And that was kind of seen as the ideal Christian up until the fourth century. 
So that language of martyrdom, challenge, you know, the faith leading to pretty negative outcomes was very common. That definitely changes drastically after Constantine. But sometimes today, especially, you know, you still hear a lot of that language, um, right. sacrifice and martyrdom and oppression and things like right. that. And for me, a bit troubling to read these accounts of these martyr stories from those first three centuries. Yeah. Hardly think it's similar, at least in this country. Right, at least in this country, absolutely. There are places in the world where Christians are seriously uh, facing that kind of persecution, but not here. Right. I was listening to a podcast where somebody was talking about this language of liberation, this language of persecution, and saying, especially when we get into issues of race and poverty and everything else, we're talking about Christian groups that, in fact, are facing that today, even in this country. I mean, or, or at least sure. certainly are not part of, of the power structure um, and for them, the, that language, that language of that church of finding redemption there and finding hope and all of that is, is incredibly powerful. And so not wanting to gloss over that even today in America. But there are a tremendous number of American Christians who are um, at the seat of power um, and seeking to be at the seat of power. I remember seeing, this was during um, the Bush years, I think I saw it was a picture of James Dobson rolling up to the White House in a limo, which was probably, you know, was not his, I'm sure. But he rolled up in a in an Italian suit and walked into, you know, the center of power in the world, really, as a as a favored guest. Uh, and that was a very striking image for me. Guessing that throughout time we have had Christian leaders sorts who have certainly tried to seek out that secular power. I think you can make that case. Um, again, like I say, in those first three or four centuries, I think that would have been not even a concept they would have had at the time. That just wasn't how they saw things. I was also reminded of a second century apologist. Uh, it's an anonymous writing, uh, but in that he talks about Christians in a response to uh, a Roman official who's talked about them as being somehow different. And he says we're a third race uh, in a sense that we wow. are... Um, we are citizens, but we're aliens here. And even though we live like everyone else here, we're still treated as if we're aliens. Um, we endure everything that foreigners endure, even as citizens here. Um, and we are uh, heirs of the spiritual kingdom. And so that's second century. And so even going back earlier than Augustine, you right. already have some of these Christian writers who are definitely wanted to emphasize this fact that we are in a sense a set apart group that although we are here we are from if you will a different family or part of a different community yeah. and so is it it really is constantine because of him that that christians start to see uh an experience of being on the other side of being in power of being the ones who get to to make laws and decide who are the other well, you know, historians hate to simplify things with an easy answer like that. Our job is always to make things complicated, right? Right. Um, but it, I think it starts with Constantine. Um, he, he abolishes, in a sense, he, toleration of Christianity. It's, it's legal to be Christian now. You cannot oppress Christians. He, he actually uses state funds to build buildings to replace things that had been lost by Christian communities. Um, I always think it's interesting that his mother, uh, Hel Helena, was a pretty 
devout devout Christian. Hmm. I often wonder how much of that influence hmm. came from his mother in all of this. Um, but he himself uh, was not baptized till his he was on his deathbed. Uh, but he got very involved in church politics, the Council of Nicaea, for example, in 325. Um, but he also continued in some of his uh, what we might call more pagan religious practices as well. Hmm. It's, it's really Theodosius um, in 380 who is the one who takes it a step further and says only Christianity and nothing mm-hmm. else. And so it's, it's almost like what you saw, and this is more in your area, but with the pilgrims, the, the Puritans coming to the United States, fleeing persecution and wanting freedom of religious worship as they saw fit, but then would not willing to grant that to anybody else. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's kind of the same thing that happened with Theodosius at okay. the end of the fourth century as well. Um, and then you, when you move into the Middle Ages, of course, um, the the ties become hard to separate hmm. uh, between political power and church power, and um, things get pretty muddled uh, in all of that. Um, but there's an interesting tradition in all of that, especially starting in about the third, early fourth century, is the rise of monasticism. Um, and I think we can see the monks and the nuns as kind of a counter trend to some of that cultural acceptance of the faith. Hmm. Um, and they they saw that counterculture faith that the martyrs represented that was, you know, persecuted and challenged and oppressed uh, that that kind of fervent faith was lost in that easy assimilation Hmm. between the state and the church that was happening. And so uh, they kind of sought to try and maintain that radical notion of faith. And so I always see them as kind of a bright spot Hmm. down through the history of the church is trying to kind of stand outside of those, often outside of those political powers that be, Uh, certainly there were some, over time that also succumbed to some of that. But right. I like to think of it as a place of refuge and hmm. kind of taking a, someone like a St. Francis, for example, who, you know, was totally interested in taking care of the poor and uh, the homeless and uh-huh. avoided all of that political stuff. Um, it's just, you know, those kinds of individuals uh, that have always been around even today. That's the nice right. thing is even in the midst of, some of the challenges we see, we have plenty of people who are, I think, still a very faithful witness to uh, what real Christianity is all about. Yeah, I mean, we've seen we've seen conservatives with whom I disagree on almost every point, uh, you know, embrace things like expanding Medicaid, as John Kasich did in Ohio, uh, based on his belief that that was a the Christian thing to do. Um, sure. That that right. that's very interesting. I'm. I'm struck by, and you're reminding me here because again, I'm uh, when I teach, when I have taught the early, uh, um, for me early, the early half of, of U.S. history, and thinking about those intellectual kind of um, origins of republicanism, and um, I'm now reminded, of course, as you're as you're saying this, that of course in that previous feudal period and everything else that 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 merging of church and state was the reason that why why there was so much discussion in the early early american 
um, dialogue about that role that the state plays. And I, and I, so sure. I'm, I'm, that, that makes the, the current kind of state of at least the conservative Christian, uh, political movement all the more odd, uh, given that origins. I mean, given their claim towards a Christian America, and yet the roots there were really of people saying, yeah, go be Christian, go do what you're going to do, but let's leave the secular government to its own because we know that that is both better for the government and for the church. I mean, it's, it was, it was sure. a, for protecting the sure. church. And so um, do you – if I can pull you into American history because I know that you've read – I mean, I remember actually early on when, when Lisa and I came out to uh, – when you were in grad school – you were probably you were close to finishing your your PhD, or maybe you were teaching. I can't remember. Um, and I had just read Nathan Hatch. Um, uh, uh, what was that? The Americanization of uh, no, it's the democratization of American Christianity. Um, and so I was I was reading a lot of those kinds of of works that were incredibly thoughtful. Um, where do you see that kind of? Uh, I mean, is it really an early national kind of 19th century part where a certain part of Protestant America uh, decided to really merge in with the political process and see themselves in, I mean, I think Hatch refers to it even as kind of a, a secular religion to a certain degree, this kind of merging of, of faith. Not, not, not to say that all those people of faith were not genuine in their faith, but that, that kind of, it's, you started to see this merging in of that American identity of nationalism and patriotism and democracy and what that meant in with the idea of Christianity. Is that a fair thing or would you, are you going to quibble with that? I'm cool with that. Bye. That's a tough one. John Faya is the guy I look to in this, uh, in many ways, his book on uh, was America founded as a Christian nation, mm -hmm. pretty important book. And he states from the outset, he's not going to make anybody happy because he's, going to cover all his bases there right um one of the things he points out though and i think that's helpful to remember is it's so hard for us now to think about the culture then in terms of religion and how religion pervaded culture in ways it just doesn't now um so i think it's hard to even comprehend that today um so they do things um and he points out you know so it's probably more the sense of the founders who are most influential, maybe a higher percentage of them probably have a more of a Christian background. Mm. Um, but uh, the culture as a whole uh, was pretty diverse mm -hmm. in a sense even then. Uh, but it's so hard to separate out, I think, then as we do now, religion and culture. Um, that's not probably a good answer. No, no, that's... It, that's a good reminder. I mean, I agree with, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. It really um, is a different country. So, you know, today to say, oh, I'm a Christian politician is, is to kind of take a stand and make a statement. Whereas in those days, they would probably even thought those terms right. were Europeans, were all Christians, right? Um, if not, we're Jewish, which is just a slight step off to the side. Right. Um, so, but then you do have these radical Baptists and others, Quakers particularly, uh, Roger Williams, the Baptist, you know, who starts arguing that, hey, you guys ought to start paying all those natives for the land you're taking. Mm. Yeah. That would be the Christian thing to do. And uh, what did that do? That gets him kicked out of 
the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and to the howling winds of winter, he finds his way to Rhode Island and establishes Rhode Island. But um, it's a mixed bag for sure. Yeah, from the from the get go. That makes a lot of sense, and it is muddled, but I think that's the reality of it. I mean, it's, uh, I've, sure. I've often tried to tell people who have, have made the argument that if it weren't for American Christianity, you know, we wouldn't have abolished slavery and we wouldn't have done all these things. I'm like, yeah, that's true, but you also have to notice that there are people on the other side of all of those arguments who are also within the orthodoxy of Christianity. I mean, they're, you know, I mean, the Southern Baptists split over, over defending slavery, um, and that, that leads me, I think, to one of the things I've been grappling with. Um, I've told my students over the last couple of years, since 2016, um, that I realized I had under-emphasized uh, the role race had played in American history. And actually, probably more accurately, what I had done was portray it in a largely progressive, that yes, it was bad, but it was a steady kind of uh, slow-grinding progress towards something better um and we can still make some of that argument in terms of i mean the civil rights movement is huge i mean there's no doubt that that has a huge impact but watching kind of the open racism come out of the woodwork um made me really reassess some of that and think about that role and then the other one is the cross and the lynching tree uh james, james Cone. yeah, yeah. Um, and introducing this idea of at least a big part of American Christianity being a slaveholder's religion. I'm curious what you think of that book. And, and if I can real quick, one of the things that I have seen on the issue of race, and, and since I know this is something you study and, and think about, I'm very curious your thoughts here. Um, is it part of what has happened after 1964, the passage of the Civil Rights Act, was that open kind of um, vulgar racism shouting racist slurs in the 40s and 50s you had politicians use the n-word from stump speeches um, calling on red-blooded americans to do what they knew they should do to keep blacks from voting um, after 1964 that becomes far more subtle and that kind of open hostility uh, is not polite anymore it's not accepted in polite society and so it has a unintended role of redefining racism to a certain degree so that people who aren't a member of the Klan and who aren't shouting racial, racist epithets um, can consider themselves to not be racist. That's, that's one of the things that I've sort of observed. And so when I'm thinking about that slaveholder's religion and that role, I am not in any way thinking that the church of my youth, for example, was openly and consciously hostily, hostile towards any, any race. But I'm still now thinking what is the role of white supremacy and um, and racism in everything? How's that for a question? Yeah, that's <laughs> a tough one. Um, well, I think of the 1619 Project that the New York Times did and all the furor that created stirred a lot of things up. I haven't read Cohn's book, so I, I, I can't comment on that. I mean, I know of it, and I know a lot of people who talk about it and I think it's a challenging read and I think it's probably something we all should be more aware of uh, probably we should all read that book I'm actually it's one in the last week I've been thinking very seriously about tackling I taught a class last year on the history of Christian Christianity in the United States that I hadn't taught in a long time and it turned out to end up being mostly a class about religion and race 
uh, that where we focused a lot on um, whether it was uh, Native Americans in the early years or slavery. Um, I do quite a bit of work also on eugenics and the eugenics movement uh, in the early 20th century. And uh, that whole movement was a movement really try and couch racism in more scientific terminology to make it seem more genteel, if you will, or more, right. as you're saying, not quite as like yelling it at people, but kind of gave it a scientific flavor that made it seem like, um, you know, racial stereotypes were real and that they were based on genetics. And so these people are in a sense less than us because of their, just because of their genetic makeup. And it just, this is where my animal science background comes in handy is because I can talk about genes and what poor science this was and how right. it actually is a total misunderstanding of how genetics works. But there's such a close tie between race and religion in the United States and it, they can work together, but they can often been foes in many ways. And it's, it's sometimes a pretty ugly uh, story that's told there. Curious, uh, the because I know that Al Mohler, um, who you uh, are well aware of, do you know him personally? Uh, he came to Southern right as I was leaving. Oh, okay. He uh, authorized a a study of the role that Southern had played. It was a, a relatively narrow focus sure. on the institution, and it was uh, almost all historical. It was all past. It's easy to look back in the... 19th century and say, hey, man, those guys in our past were pretty racist, slaveholding guys. That was not pretty. Let's just say that now. And that's right. that's kind of what it was. Yeah. But then the implication is, well, what does that mean for us today? Yeah. And that part of it is probably what got left out. Another school in Louisville that is, is strictly an African-American seminary. And um, so they had kind of raised the question, well, all those resources you have and gained over all these years, maybe you might pass a little of that our way and help us out uh, in the midst of all of this kind of self-reflection that you're doing and, and right. whatnot. And of course, that went nowhere. Right. Nothing, nothing came of that. The Cone book, as I recall, the observation that you had a lot of Southern, um, and this, and in this, I think it includes Methodist and um, other. Um, Protestant, it's not just Southern Baptists, obviously, um, yeah. who would have, mm-hmm. right, and they would have, they would have essentially the black church in the neighborhood that they had a relationship with, and they would have, you know, and they would, would have, they would encourage them, there would be, and it, it's, it strikes me very much in white patriarchy. He said, and this is part of that, that kind of slaveholders religion that he attached to people like Billy Graham too, to, in a certain way, was, it was this, message of when when those you know for the example of the school in in louisville that's coming to southern saying hey what about helping us in the south in these kind of situations the black church would reach out to the white church for some kind of assistance or addressing issues of lynching or other issues of of civil rights and the white church almost always responded with that's not for this earth that's for that's for heaven you're never going to address that, so you need to focus on your personal relationship and not focus on these political issues. And that's—it seems I, I have a feeling that has not gone away. 
particularly in more what we might call evangelicals, and that's a word that's also very loaded. Um, hard to know what to do with that anymore. You know, really, after the Scopes trial, um, there was this whole sense that all social concerns, all, you know, race or anything else were, were not of this world, so we don't have to focus. Our focus is on saving souls, spiritual, more of a spiritual emphasis and not, nothing physical. Um, and I think that's kind of along the this, this same vein. And I, the whole South slavery thing is interesting to me to try and make sense of the fact that, I mean, you had some of the most adamant, in fact, more uh, abolitionist organizations in the South in the, before the war than you did in the North. Mm. Um, and so I think there's something to be said, you know, for dynamics when you push somebody into a corner how they respond and i think that's part of what went on there and i'm often wondering if today uh, if that's not how some christians feel as well that they mm. some for whatever reason they feel like they've been pushed into a corner and can't truly be themselves and so they're kind of taking this more defensive hmm. uh, um, activist not now just worried about spiritual matters but also physical matters and you know the whole culture war right. notion that, that, that we're battling over um i wonder if what augustine would say today about you know uh concern about christian influences being cut out of the public square you know would he say that certainly they can be good as you indicate there's there's uh there's things to be said for healthcare and other issues that certainly can be shaped by Christian values. But um, do we get so defensive that we demand that we have our rights in this? Hmm. Uh, would Augustine uh, today say you're focusing on the wrong kingdom? I don't know. Hmm. Something to consider, I guess. I was thinking of, of my grad school reading so much about uh, Western settlement and, you know, getting into community building and the, um, state building and all that kind of stuff, and almost all of that is is driven by by essentially WASP, you know, ex except for there are pockets where Catholics are are certainly play a stronger role. But there's this sense of having this uh, unfettered access to the public square, and it's and it's not malicious; it's just there. It's just that that's who everybody is, and right. yet then when that's challenged in the 20th century, then it becomes. Um, it becomes seen as persecution just simply to say, wait a minute, you don't own the public square. I mean, you, you certainly have a right to be there, but you are not the one who gets to own and decide. It's part of the eugenics thing as well. And mm -hmm. it was all part of that was spurred by immigration. Right. Suddenly all these immigrants that are coming in are not Protestants and many of them are Catholic um, and uh, Irish or Italian, um, not to mention Jewish. Um, right. So, Again, race pops back into the scene in that whole. Uh, at that point, it's the fear of you know seeing you're losing control right. through the immigrants coming pouring into the country. Um, the whole immigrant quota system that was put in place in the 1920s by Wilson right. uh, is all those quotas all are based on eugenics data, hmm. um, and so certain races get much smaller numbers. It all came out of uh, Cold Spring Harbor, uh, the eugenics record office there, hmm. uh, in establishing, I mean, basically saying certain races were better for us than others. And if right. you let too many of the degenerates into the country, 
uh, we'll have crime, we'll have uh, poverty, we'll have immorality. That sounds, sounds oddly familiar. <laughs> Doesn't it, though? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, I was thinking, by the way, as you were talking about that, that kind of impulse for those movements, I was struck by, as I recall, the, one of the biggest proponents for public education were Protestants who feared the rise of parochial schools. Uh, also thinking about the so-called progressive period, remember one entire seminar that was devoted to trying to figure out what the hell the progressive movement was because it's all over the place. You know, you've got, you know, you've got the KKK coming back, you've got uh, NAACP, you've got scientific racism, you've got this kind of stuff all merged in, all seeing themselves as progressive in, in a certain way. And it's sure. it's a hodgepodge um, mess. And I'm also struck by one of the thoughts I had when you were talking about abolition movements in the south before the war there were more of them than in the north and you know we shouldn't forget that actually abolitionists were run out of boston you know uh, uh you know being chased by a mob um that uh and then i flashed forward to afterwards when i started teaching colorado history um i realized how uh, so my, you know, because my dissertation was on on water history in, in Western Colorado, and so when they asked me if I could teach Colorado history, I said sure. And then I realized I, you know, I could only talk about my dissertation so long. So I started looking into it, and you know, and then all of a sudden I realized the role of race in uh, in Colorado. Um, and you know, in 1925, the heyday of the second Klan, the second iteration of the Klan. Number one membership is Indiana. Number two is Colorado. Seeing this as a regional thing or as a, you know, just a rural thing or something like that, not recognizing that this is a, a bigger problem. I guess that's where I'm using anyway right now. But if we can flash forward to today, um, I appreciate how, how much I've asked you to to speak on incredibly complex issues and and to give me uh, really short and simple answers. Um, so thank you for fighting back on that, by the way. <laughs> but, um, you know, I mean, you, you, you and I are friends on Facebook, so you see a lot of my rants. Um, so you obviously know some of the, <laughs> some of the things that I, I object to. Um, I actually am, am curious. I mean, you know, there's the Franklin Grahams. There's the, you know, James Dobson is still holding on to some semblance of power and not making the faith look very good. Well, let me just ask you, what is your sense of that in terms of that other part of that that doesn't seem to get the air airplay and the and the, and the coverage? Yeah, first, let me just say, uh, the other thing I've been thinking about a lot lately is how terrible social media has been for us. Why we ever went down this road, I don't know. But I, yeah, I don't know that I could break that habit. It's a great way to be in contact with a lot of people. Yeah. But um, it has created so much divisiveness that we don't need. Correct. I can't blame that alone. I mean, it's kind of inherent in us as humans. But um, there's certainly alternative voices out there. Uh, some I think you see as well. Um, I mentioned John Fea. Um, professor at Messiah um, College. He has a blog, Way of Improvement Leads Home, where he kind of does a whole alternative look at some of these things. Uh, he actually did a book last, uh, actually the year Trump was elected, on evangelicals and Trump and how their activism and politics has gotten to the point where it has gotten them. Um, Trip Fuller is an individual who has a, oh. uh, it's called Homebrewed Christianity. I don't know if you've seen any of his stuff, but he also kind of does some, maybe some alternative takes. 
terms of scripture, and particularly the Old Testament, I always got by the name of Peter Enns, E-N-N-S, mm. professor in uh, Minnesota, who does some great uh, things to think about that sometimes get overlooked. Um, John Pavlovitz, mm-hmm. um, preacher, outspoken social critic, also very uh, helpful in many of these ways. Many of these guys are kind of prophetic women. Um, Rachel Helda Evans, what yeah. a loss. Yeah. Uh, such an important voice in all of this. Um, if you haven't read her books, I highly encourage people to read her her stuff. Um, even Beth Moore, you know, of all the people to suddenly become controversial, it's just, is that where we're at now? It's just crazy to me. I follow her on Twitter, and uh, I was one of her biggest critics simply because I could tell I mean, her background and, you know, experiencing sexual abuse and speaking out on that, and I know a lot of women have found so much help from that. And then I knew she was devastated by the Trump candidacy. And But, you know, she got slammed down pretty pretty good by the gatekeepers. And so I would, I would give her grief on Twitter just saying, stop speaking in code, because she would say these things that both sides could hear. Well, I don't know if you've followed her recently, especially with some of these racial killings. Um, she's just been very direct, and I, I, I admire her. I mean, I absolutely, because I know, I mean, we know the culture that she comes out of. Right. And and speaking out against that is, um, there are times when I'm I'm probably not as patient for them as I should be, because that that's a that's a challenge to challenge your entire network, you know, which we saw with Jen Hatmaker did it. Uh, and found where she right. was. Rachel Rachel did the same thing. I mean, spoke out and and uh, so that's it's a nice reminder by the way to rem- to remember people like Rachel and Jen and I heard yeah. an interview with Jen Hepmaker that was really uh, that was a neat that was a neat experience and so I'm glad to remember that. Yeah, and she, you know, again, why why pick on these people? I mean, here you've got this caring loving female mother figure who just wants us to all be as Christian as we can be. And it just right. gets such grief. And I just don't understand that. Right. Right. She's a very powerful voice and deserves to be heard. Well, I'm not sure we uh, uh, solved anything, but uh, this is, I mean, this is really useful for me. I mean, I knew that talking to you would be, would be good because you have a breadth of, of knowledge. And actually John Faya. Uh, from Messiah is going to be on our campus next fall. Um, so it'll be interesting to hear from him yeah. here in the midst of all that's going on in the, during the election as it'll be in October. So um, right in the midst of all of oh. that. Yeah. Have you read uh, Stephen Prothero? I think he's the one that wrote American Jesus, American conceptions of Jesus and how that changes, especially during the 19th century. There was a lot of interesting things in there about especially melding in kind of uh, individualism, American ideas of, of uh, autonomy, all of that mm-hmm. kind of wrapped in, in with their reading of, of Jesus. And that, that's, you know, an interesting, yeah. interesting book. But Another figure we haven't mentioned but I think is interesting in the midst of all of current situation is Dietrich Bonhoeffer mm. and uh, his activities um, – the rise of Hitler in Germany, um, and actually Trip Fuller, who I mentioned, the homebrewed Christianity page, is doing a whole uh, seminar in June 
he should give me some kind of credit for this. But um, if you sign up for it, it's a reading discussion course on readings of Bonhoeffer uh, that he's going to be doing and sponsoring uh, through June that I think will be really uh, that's, fascinating. That seems incredibly timely, sadly, but uh, but yeah. yeah, yeah. Really do appreciate the time and you've given me some stuff to think about and some stuff to read and some stuff to check out. and Perfect. And... Uh, yeah, let's yeah. keep in touch. We can meet again later if we need to. Yeah. Carry on the conversation. Yeah, that sounds good. It's time for a state sale, a podcast on American democracy, because America is better than this.